You're listening to the Theology Mom podcast. And now, here's Theology Mom, Krista Bontrager. Hello and happy Monday to everyone. I want to thank you for joining me on this uh well, it's actually a very nice Monday evening here in Southern California where I'm broadcasting from. So, wow, it's been a couple of weeks <laughs> since we talked to each other. I had no idea when I did the live stream two weeks ago, when I did part one of this teaching, all the things that would transpire in the meantime, the protests, the riots, the looting, the killing. It's uh, It's been a lot. <laughs> Is, are you exhaust, as exhausted as I am? I am absolutely emotionally exhausted. In fact, 20 minutes ago, before I put my makeup on, I was crying a lot. I am absolutely exhausted. And uh, the death of George Floyd in Minneapolis was horrible. It's tragic. One of God's image bearers died in a horrible way. We all watched a murder happen or a killing happen in real time. Many people are hurting. They're confused. People's businesses, their livelihoods have been at least temporarily destroyed. Hopefully some of them can rebuild. Um, Some people have been killed. Others are feeling angry and wanting change. It's all sort of a big mess. And if we're honest, there are 45 sides to this Rubik's Cube. And I am going to cover just one small part of the discussion tonight And this is just my very humble attempt to get us a little further down the road in terms of our biblical understanding of justice. It's a very modest goal. (laughs) I'm not going to solve all the world's problems. I was thinking right before I went on the air that only Jesus is big enough to step into all of this confusion and pain and help us, Lord Jesus, have mercy upon us. That has really been my prayer is just echoing from the liturgy, have mercy upon us. Maybe my other prayer is come Lord Jesus, as it says in scripture. So before I get into the teaching, I want to, you know, share some things tonight that I've been learning as part of a journey uh, the last couple of years as it relates to justice. And, you know, one of the, the themes that I keep seeing over and over in all the protests and the online articles and social media posts is the word justice. People want justice. And I'm going to do my best to try to help us think about that more clearly tonight from a Christian point of view. I see even a lot of Christian leaders calling for justice on social media. I think that's good. We should want God's justice in the world. Some will even quote verses from scripture with the word justice in them. But what I've noticed is that very seldom are we getting a very clear and biblically based discussion of what justice actually is. How do we flesh that out in the real world? And so I think if we're going to advocate for justice, then I think we ought to have a conversation about what it means so that we can build a strong foundation, that we can know what we're signing up for (laughs) from a scriptural point of view. I I don't think it's, it's going to be helpful for us to just keep using the word justice over and over in a highly politically charged environment without really having a discussion, at least on some level or the beginning of a discussion on what justice is. So my goal here tonight is to try to 
help fill in some of those gaps. And, I, you know, I just want to be clear that I think Christians ought to stand up for injustices. And the reality is, is our world is filled with injustices, all of which are the result of humanity's sin. What we are seeing played out on the media and on social media right now is the depth of our depravity. I, I think that, I think it's G.K. Chesterton who said that the doctrine of original sin is the one doctrine that can be empirically verified. We're watching it, just that some of the depths of our depravity play out on all sides. And where I think that I am trying to find my way is how can we have some biblically focused discussions about justice? And these issues are so complicated. Like I said earlier, this is a, a Rubik's Cube with 45 sides. We need to ha- be having conversations with, with people from a variety of different disciplines. We need help from theologians, from exegetical people that are experts in scripture. We need pastors and economists and and justice specialists and law enforcement specialists. And we need all of these people to be in a sane and peaceful biblically oriented conversation. If we're going to ever have a thought about bringing the kingdom of God to bear in the real world, we're going to need to have a lot of conversations from an interdisciplinary standpoint. And we need to have those conversations, but we also need to be aware that that nothing is going to have lasting change without the transforming power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, without the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. And our first task is to preach the gospel because the gospel changes hearts. And that's what's really needed right now. And I hope that in all of this, you're not missing the opportunity to bring the real gospel in the middle of all the noise. All right, so let's get into the teaching a little bit here and get into it. What is justice? Now, in part one of this teaching, I went over some basic definitions of the Hebrew word uh, that's often translated for justice. There's actually two words in Hebrew. We're mostly focusing in these teachings on mishpat, justice, um, which is the realm of justice related to laws and, and law courts and, and juridical sorts of things. However, uh, we're going to interweave in that discussion aspects of our personal justice, what the Bible calls sadak, which is how we live as individuals and how we treat each other in our everyday life. So we're going to kind of weave both of those themes together again tonight, just as we did in, in part one. And if I were to offer a biblical definition of the key idea behind justice, it would be this definition is the Bible wants us from the justice standpoint is to treat people equally without partiality, no matter if the person is rich or poor, or we could add to that Jew or Greek or uh, male or female. God doesn't show partiality. He treats us all with the same rules, the same kind of a way. He has one, you know, justice standard, and he has one solution to our problem, which is sin. And so he doesn't show partiality, and he wants his people to be known as a people who don't show partiality in their lives. So 
the question that we um, t- thought about in, in part one of this teaching is, how do we pursue justice for, for the victim in a crime? Tonight, we're going to be considering the question, how do we pursue justice for the accused? Now, I realize that some people are going to possibly be confused even by the question that I'm asking here. Why do we need to pursue justice for the accused? Especially in this day and age, now that we have cell phone videos everywhere, um, and we're seeing increasingly to see violence being posted on social media with these cell phones. And, and then we're, we're living in an age now where we're all in the jury. We're all appointing ourselves to, to be judge and jury. And you see people on social media say, well, isn't it obvious that, there's, that this person is guilty? Look, there's a video. So we're going to talk about some of those dynamics tonight and what God's word has to say about some of those dynamics, or at least what I think God's word has to say. And I would submit this to you for you to test all things and, and search the scriptures just as the Bereans did in the book of Acts. Now, when we're talking about justice, what we have to remember is our foundational assumption is that God defines justice. Our emotions don't define justice. What we call common sense doesn't define justice. Majority consensus or majority vote doesn't define justice. Mob rule doesn't define justice. Justice flows out of the very character and nature of God. And we said, you know, justice doesn't come from a law court, doesn't come from the Constitution. God alone is what we look to for our justice standard. And because God is a God who does not act with partiality, he, he says he wants his people to also emulate him and not act with partiality. Now, the thing about living in this world and in, in this creation is that human law courts, I think, reflect something about the character of heaven that there is this kind of law court idea that, that happens in heaven and, and that one day all of us will stand before the throne and we will have to face and give an account for our, our actions. And if we are trusting in, in Jesus's good works on our behalf, then we will receive mercy. Human law courts, in some sense, reflect God's standard of justice or the idea of justice. And so human law courts can either reflect God's standard of justice or they can pervert it. But the one and only one way that we know that any action is good or bad or right or wrong is because it corresponds to God's character of justice, his definition of justice. And the reason we know what God's definition of justice is, is we have to look in scripture. We have to do the hard work of understanding and interpreting God's word. So again, it can't be based on our feelings. It can't be based on what we think about things, just just what seems right to us, our intuitions. It must be firmly and squarely rooted in God's word. So if we're having a conversation about justice and we're doing it apart from scripture, we're probably going to be very limited in how we can engage with God's standard of justice. Now, there's some standard of justice I think God's built into us. We call it a conscience. 
and is part of being created in his image. But if we really want the details of what God thinks about justice, we're going to have to look in his word. So when we think about justice for the accused, I'm going to say some things tonight that I'm going to ask you to try on. (laughs) And I'm going to use God's word as our foundation, and they might uh, stir up some of your emotions. And I'm just going to invite you to test them and to look in God's word, because that for us as Christians is what our standard is. And God's word actually has quite a lot to say about justice for the accused. So because that matters to God, it, it ought to matter to us. Now, in part one, we talked about this idea again of accountability, that when we're talking about justice for the victim, we're talking about accountability. And so if we're going to pursue God's justice, we want to look for the truth. We want to establish the truth. Um, we want to, pers- to pursue justice for the victim is to pursue the true story of what happened to that person and bring um, the perpetrator to justice. If I were to summarize God's plan for justice for the accused, it would be the words to establish the evidence, to establish the truth. And I'm going to try to to unpack that. So I've got three principles that we're going to get into, and I'm just going to walk us through them um, as we try to understand God's justice for the accused. Okay, my first principle is whether the defendant is rich or poor, he or she should receive the same treatment. This is what it means in scripture to treat someone without partiality. And this is a key foundational, where am I looking? Over here. Uh, This is a key foundational principle of God's justice standards as a whole. So we're going to look at scripture. We've got Leviticus chapter 19 here. It says, do not pervert justice. Do not show partiality to the poor or favoritism to the great, but judge your neighbor fairly. So if we want to know what it means to judge someone fairly, we have to know that we don't give partiality to the rich or the poor. And this is a very important concept because we're hearing a lot of uh, people coming forward right now that almost makes it sound like God has partiality toward the poor. God definitely wants his people to be mindful of the poor, to help protect the voiceless and the vulnerable. But we have to couple that with the, the, the whole counsel of God. We can't just let that one aspect of God's justice overshadow or become like an axiom for everything else. Really, the one of the key axioms of God's justice is acting without partiality and not showing favoritism to the rich or the poor. In other words, the rich get the same punishments as the poor. The poor get the same quality of trial as the rich. We need to pay attention that the poor receive a fair trial. We see in Exodus chapter 23, verse 6, do not deny justice to your poor people in their lawsuits. We need to pay attention and make sure that the poor have a mechanism for bringing their their cases to the court. It says in Deuteronomy chapter 24, do not deprive the foreigner or the fatherless of justice or take the cloak of the widow as a pledge. In other words, we don't exploit the poor. That would pervert God's justice. It violates his standard of justice when we exploit the poor. 
but it would also violate God's standard of justice if we give preferential treatment to the rich or if we marginalize the rich. All the same rules should apply to everyone. Similarly, it would pervert God's justice uh, when we assume the innocence of the powerful, but make the poor prove their innocence. And this is where we get the idea in our justice system of innocent until proven guilty. This should be one of the the principles that is equally applied to all without partiality, that, that there is the availability, whether you are rich or poor, to establish that your, your guilt must be established. And we're going to get into more about the mechanism of how that happens. But the innocent until proven guilty is actually kind of a latent idea in God's justice system. And so it should be applied to everyone at its core. God's justice is about equal treatment for all, rich or poor, powerful, or those who lack power. Now, along these lines, I want to say that justice, social justice advocates raise some very important points on behalf of the accused. One of the points that they raise relates to uh, inequalities when it comes to criminal defense. And, you know, my problem with the social, with many social justice advocates, not all, but, but many of them is that even though when they have like good ideas that correspond could correspond potentially to scripture, they often don't really have it in stated in a very robust way. And it's taken me a long time to, to kind of try to understand what some of the points are that, that do seem relevant and thoughtful and important for us to consider as God's people for talking about justice. And so one of the, the key things that I think that Christians would do well to interact and, and reflect on is this idea of having defenses that are fair for, for both the rich and the poor. And we have a system in our country of public defenders to try to help with this. And theoretically, this is a good thing. It's a potential way of upholding God's standard of justice so that the poor are assured of proper representation. They read you your Miranda rights and they say, you know, if you're arrested, Uh, If you can't afford an attorney, one will be appointed for you. And so technically, we are all assured that we will receive a defense. It's a provision for the poor. I think that's that's a good idea. That seems consistent with God's standard of justice. But the problem is, is that how this system shows up, the system of public defenders, how it shows up in, in real life often leads to a lot of problems and therefore injustices. If you haven't yet, you might want to read the book Just Mercy or see the movie as kind of a a helpful illustration of what can happen in many of these cases with public defenders. In fact, we did a show about the movie Just Mercy a while back in February, and it, it, you know, that it kind of augments this part of the conversation that I'm having tonight. Oftentimes, public defenders have way too many clients to be able to take care of them properly. So they aren't able to actually provide an adequate defense. They may even encourage an innocent person to negotiate a plea deal for the sake of simplicity or enter a false confession. And 
there, there are, let's just have some real talk. You know, there are a lot of problems with the execution of this very well-meaning. And I would say biblically, there's a biblical idea here, a kernel of a biblical idea, well-meaning system, but because public defenders are overworked and uh, the, the rich can often employ a, a, high-powered paid defense team, it does create a situation where the poor are often disadvantaged. And and the inability to get an adequate defense does seem to me to be a problem in in our system. And it, it, it could be an example of a perversion of justice when it comes to the powerful getting a better defense than the poor. So how could Christians begin to advocate for God's justice on this issue? Again, this is not an exhaustively complete answer, but here's three ideas just to get the conversation going and to kind of paint the picture. Um, I think that the churches would do well to encourage bright, young Christian, young people to go into law practice, to consider how maybe they might become public defenders or defense attorneys for the poor, uh, much like the the attorney in in the film Just Mercy, consider how they might take cases pro bono and offer quality defenses to defendants who can't pay the normal fees. A second idea might be to consider financially supporting something like the Innocence Project, which works to free people who have had an inadequate defense at, at their trial. They will take certain cases. Uh, They've had much success with using DNA evidence to overturn bad convictions, but something like that. And maybe you don't agree with the politics of the Innocence Project, but maybe there's other people who are doing similar work that, you know, uh, that you might agree with. But, But thinking about what can be done in a practical way to help overturn bad convictions, convictions where there's clear evidence that this person was was wrongly incarcerated. I think a third idea could be that churches could put aside money to fund a proper defense for someone in the congregation should it become necessary. It could sort of be a, a preemptive fund that you you have together and you already have the money saved so that if somebody in your congregation did need a defense because there was some pretty clear evidence that they weren't guilty, you know, that could be a way of providing support for that person. Again, these are just three ideas to help get the discussion going based on the biblical principle of an equal defense for the rich and the poor. Another issue related to partiality that I want to talk about is I think that social justice people raise a really good point when they talk about the possibility of inequities when it comes to prison sentencing. If it could be, and and this is an if, if it could be demonstrated through multiple studies and peer review and sound research that two people committing the same crime, but from two different ethnicities consistently get two different prison sentences. That would be, I think, a legitimate pointer to systemic problem of injustice. Now, granted, that's, that's a lot of ifs, but I'm And I'm not stating what my personal opinion is on this, because quite frankly, I haven't looked into the details of that research enough to make a public statement about it. I'm just giving a hypothetical of what systemic injustice could look like. 
And I think that that could be an example of showing favoritism toward one group over another group. This is a this is a worthy topic to carefully research and discuss. Unfortunately, what's happening right now is not a lot of careful conversation. It's a lot of yelling, a lot of heat, and we need to be in the, some careful conversations. We need to be in some some carefully researched things and and Christians need to be conversant about this and and we need to have some some people who have really researched these things and and to bring them forward in a in a careful manner. So I I but I think that this is a, a potentially a legitimate point that some social justice people are bringing up. It deserves careful consideration. It deserves discussion and research, but I think that it's it it is a a possibility. So, okay, we're going to go on to number 2, our second way that we want to stand for justice for the accused, and that is to look for cooperating testimony to establish the truth of the matter. Now, we covered this in some way in our part one of our teaching of the use of two or three witnesses. So I'm only going to give a couple of scriptures here, but when someone is arrested or they're putting together the the papers to arrest somebody, there ought to be what we call due process, where the, there's an establishment of the evidence. Deuteronomy chapter 19 says, one witness is not enough to convict anyone accused of a crime or offense that may have been committed. A matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. And then there's a second verse in um, Deuteronomy 17, that's similar, on the testimony of two or three witnesses, a person is to be put to death, but no one is to be put to death on the testimony of only one witness. When we get to the New Testament, we see that God just threads this part of his revelation about his standard of justice right through to the church. That, that in church discipline, in Matthew chapter 18, it talks about how the truth of the matter must be established by two or three witnesses. Jesus is quoting the Old Testament law here. He's saying, He's basically saying my standard of justice doesn't change. The truth of a matter still must be established by two or three witnesses. Uh, When we get to the the epistles in 1 Timothy chapter 5, the apostle Paul instructs Timothy as he's leading his church that if there's an accusation against an elder, there needs to be two or three witnesses involved in order to establish the truth of something. All of this taken together, and, and I could have a lot of verses on establishing things through, through witnesses. There's a lot of verses about that. But even though church doesn't have jurisdiction over culture, we know that God's justice standard still demands witnesses. We don't go by hearsay. If, if we're going to advocate for God's standard of justice in our human justice system or in our justice system of sorts in a local church— where something is brought forward, we don't rely just on one line of evidence or one eyewitness or flimsy evidence. We need to be very careful with the idea, I think, that that someone should be believed just simply because of their gender. We now have, have women uh, historically had a problem with trying to report or getting people to pay attention to problems with sexual assault and not being believed. I think that's a worthy matter to be researched and discussed. It's, it's, I think that's probably a true statement. 
But we need to have a process in place where there's an actual investigation into the matter and credible witnesses are sought out and questioned and evidence examined. And again, as I said in part one of this series, witnesses, I think, can include modern concepts such as eyewitnesses, but also more than that. It could include cell phone data. It could include cyber evidence, DNA evidence, fingerprints, autopsy reports, firearms analysis. All of these things are witnesses. And so we want to think about how we establish the truth of the matter. But God's standard of justice also requires us to uncover false witnesses. It says in Deuteronomy chapter 19 that the judges must make a thorough investigation. And if the witnesses prove to be a liar, giving false testimony against a fellow Israelites, then do to the false witness as the witness intended to do to the other party. This is an interesting standard, an interesting law that God gives his people. In Proverbs chapter 6, it, it says this, a heart that this is one of the things that God hates. He gives this list of several things he hates, and one of them is a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush to evil, a false witness who pours out lies, and a person who stirs up conflict in a community. God takes witnesses very seriously because this is how, in his standard of justice, truth is established. So if someone... If, if you're a Christian and you're working in a, in a prosecutor's office or a law, you're a law enforcement officer or anybody related to law enforcement, if you're engaging in practices that coerce witnesses or shade the outcome of evidence to support an agenda, that would be a violation of God's standard of justice. If you are doing even like a private investigation, like a lot of universities have some kind of committee that will investigate things before they will call law enforcement, and you're on one of those committees and you know that something is happening and it's not being properly investigated or witness testimony is being discarded or put to the side, you have an obligation as a Christian to not not allow justice to be perverted just to protect the powerful. That would be a violation of God's justice. If we're going to truly love our neighbor as ourselves, we, if we're in a position of power, we want to put the kind of case together that we would want if we were on trial or our children were on trial. That's what it means to love your neighbor. So if you're a Christian and you're working in a situation to uncover the truth, and you interview witnesses that say, hey, there's a problem here with this person. This person's acting abusively. This person's stealing money or whatever, but they're very powerful and they have a big name and you know it, but you do nothing. That would be to pervert God's standard of justice. Now, I want to take a moment to try to do some application of this principle to our current situation. One of the the very real challenges and one of the reasons why many black people are so upset is because they have a history of not receiving what we call due process. 
not having things properly investigated. And in some cases, this still happens today. Flimsy and faked evidence and a lack of resources to pay for proper representation has resulted in incarceration for some people, not all, but some people um, in a false way. And, And this reality is what played a major role in the rise of things like the Innocence Project, because there was a sensibility that that there's there's my my dad or my uncle or my mom is is incarcerated and I know that they didn't do this but the case that was put together with them they didn't that they didn't properly investigate it they didn't investigate the witnesses or they only had one eyewitness and sent this person away the, the this reality has led also to a widespread resentment and distrust of the justice system by many in the black community and 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 rightfully so, they, they would believe that the system is, is rigged against them. And in my opinion, this is a perfectly reasonable response, given the history of some in the Black community when it comes to railroading Blacks with, and with wrongful convictions. I think it's a very worthy and important point that needs to be raised. It needs to be looked at. It needs to be understood and Christians ought to be a stand if you, again, you're working in one of these places and you see something happening that is a perversion of God's justice just to protect the powerful or to protect the rich. You have a moral obligation to speak up. You can't let your tribalism for a certain group to prevent you from speaking up. But likewise, if you are an eyewitness to a crime and it goes against the tribalism of your neighborhood or your community to speak up, but you're a Christian. You don't want to pervert justice either. So we all, as God's people, need to speak up on behalf of the truth without partiality. Christians need to have some clarity about the fact that due process isn't just a nice idea for those who can afford it. It's a biblical idea for the rich and the poor alike. So if you're a Christian who is involved in, in again, in a, as a prosecutor or law enforcement, I want to encourage you to take a strong stand for due process. And if you don't work in those arenas, but you're on social media, I want to give you a word of caution not to get crazy with making pronouncements of guilt or innocence based on what you see on social media. Maybe slow your roll a little bit and stand for the principle of innocent until proven guilty, because that's a biblical idea. And if we're going to be serious about our faith, we want to hold positions that are consistent with scripture. We want to press for a credible investigation. We want to to advocate for truthful witnesses to come forward, for the evidence to, to come out, to establish the truth. Number three, our third principle for how we can stand for justice for the accused. Christians should not curse the accused. This, I think, is the biggest need right now in our cultural moment. This is where I'm seeing so many Christians kind of fall in the ditch a little bit. So I'm going to try to talk us through some, some things that I'm seeing. As part of this, when we're not cursing the accused, we don't want to seek revenge. 
In the old covenant, God actually appointed judges to oversee disputes. And one of the provisions that God made was to set aside certain cities of refuge where people could flee and wait for their trial, specifically when they killed someone. In Numbers 35, this is just one passage of many passages where this is covered, but it, God tells his people that if somebody accidentally kills someone else, they can flee to the city of refuge and wait for their trial. And the purpose behind this was so that the family of the, of the, the victim wouldn't come after them and, and get revenge. Very important point. And we know from other passages that, that God uh, says, you know, that it's his job to repay. Vengeance is his we are not in the revenge business, okay, as God's people. So we should never, ever promote a, a, a perspective of revenge. That is not our jurisdiction. That belongs to God. In the new covenant, God has appointed human governments to be his um, deacon or servant of justice. It says in Romans chapter 13, uh, for one in authority is God's servant for your good. And that word servant is the same word used for a deacon elsewhere. And so if you see, if you do wrong, be afraid for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. God has appointed human governments as to being the ones to bear the sword. The church doesn't do that. Now the church can engage in church discipline, which usually, you know, there's some steps involved and ultimately excommunication, which excommunication means keeping people from communion keeping them from the Lord's table specifically, but also from some communion and, and fellowship. But, but, but the Lord has assigned the human government to wield the sword. That's not the jurisdiction of the church. So in our country, we need to look to the state to conduct its investigation. This is why the concept of law and order is so important. And we, we have to let that process play out and, and, it's, we're kind of blessed in our country that many of our laws are actually based on the Bible and, and big ideas that come from scripture. You can just peruse law journals on Google and, and find that out. There's hundreds of law articles written about how there's the, a, a, a connection between many of our laws in our country and scripture. And, and this, but this also highlights why it's so important for Christians to consider going into law and order professions as a noble calling. We, we need good people with, with ethical sensibilities that, that align with the Judeo-Christian worldview so that justice can be executed well. When, when people are corrupt, the system as a whole becomes increasingly corrupt. And so we need Christians to be salt and light in law enforcement and in a justice system but to be a steady force for good, to protect the innocent and punish the guilty in an equitable, non-partial way. And when that doesn't happen, it is the Christian's obligation to speak up and say, hey, now, wait a minute. And sometimes this might put our job in jeopardy. Sometimes this might cause our union card to be in jeopardy, but we trust in the Lord for provision. And so just as Jesus says, yeast helps the 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 loaf rise. We want to be that yeast. And, and so we need Christians in these professions. Vilifying them will not help. We need to rather encourage our young people to consider these things as to be a noble profession and to train our young people in their worldview, to understand 
how their worldview can connect to their profession. And at the same time, recognize that we do live in a sinful world. We stand in the reality that sometimes a, a, a verdict will be just, but many times it won't be because we live in a sinful, fallen world. But in, a, in addition to, to not seeking revenge, a way that I see people cursing their neighbor and seeking revenge right now is through our words. It says in, in Matthew chapter 5, for example, that we have an obligation to pray for our enemies and bless those who persecute us. As, as Christians, we, we don't have the luxury of making pronouncements over people of guilt or innocence. That's not our job unless we're, we're in a human jury where we're hearing all the evidence and we're hearing the case. We don't have the luxury of cursing the accused. And we don't get to opt out of praying for the accused. We don't get the, the, the luxury of, of not praying for people that we may find vile. We have an obligation as Christians not to curse the officer or officers who are involved in the killing of George Floyd. We, we don't have that privilege. We have an obligation as Christians to pray for these people that the Lord of the harvest would, would bring workers to bring them the gospel, to bring them the true Lord Jesus Christ, that the, that the Lord would send people that are godly Christians across our path to love them in a transformational way, to call them to repentance, where we could pray blessings over their families, that their families who are impacted by these events would be, would be safe and, and that God would make provision for those families. Everybody's hurting. Everybody's hurting right now. And we as Christians, we, only Jesus is big enough to step into all of this pain on all sides. But our job as Christians, our first and foremost job is to pray, to pray for everybody involved. It says in Exodus chapter 23, not to follow the crowd in doing wrong. It, and, and one of the examples it gives is when you give a testimony in a lawsuit, do not pervert justice by siding with the crowd. When you appoint yourself as judge and jury over somebody just because you've seen a video on social media, that is to pervert justice, it's to follow the crowd. If people are engaging in a mob mentality to do evil, whether that's to protect the, the guilty or malign the guilty, don't join in. That's not a party you want to join. We don't, we want to be a people that do not rush to judgment. We want to be a people who say innocent until proven guilty. We want to talk about these concepts with our children. We want to guard our words carefully so that we are reflecting humility in these things. We want to, just as we would want people to believe that we are innocent, if we are innocent, we should extend that to others. We want to treat others the way we would want to be treated. We want to investigate things the way we would want our case to be investigated. So don't pronounce curses over people. Things like, well, they should hang, or I hope they rot in hell. Like those are curses over somebody that is somebody who's made in an image of God. 
George Floyd was an image bearer. And the men who killed him are also image bearers. We need to be praying for the victim's family. And we need to be praying for the accused and their families. We need to pray for all of the parties involved in these terrible situations. But we want no part of public shaming these people. It says in James chapter 3 that we... Uh, With the tongue, we praise our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse human beings who have been made in his likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. When we say things like we call people Karen and we engage in cancel culture, we pressure firings, we say, I hope he dies. These are things that I don't don't think, I'm not convinced that, that Christians should have any part doing. We should be slow to speak, withholding judgment, looking for evidence, allowing the justice system to work however imperfectly it works because we're sinners. And when it doesn't work well, we want to advocate for justice for the accused and for the victim. So just to sum up as we wind things down here, if we want to uphold God's standard of justice for the victim, then we need to investigate the crime carefully. We need to follow the evidence where it leads, no matter if it leads to a powerful person or a poor person. And we need to hold the responsible parties accountable for their actions. If we want to uphold justice for the accused, then we want to work toward establishing guilt in an equitable way with solid evidence, multiple lines of evidence without partiality, the rich or the poor. And we have to do these things simultaneously. Christians are obligated to stand for justice for the accused and for the victim at the same time. We have to balance both of these goals. God doesn't just stand for justice for the poor. He stands for justice for everyone. He is a God who is not partial, and he wants a people who do not engage in partiality. From a Christian worldview standpoint, God's justice will never be perfectly executed on earth because we are all sinners. And I'm going to bring it back to something I've said many times on my live streams before, because this is a helpful perspective to have. We live in a two creation world. In this creation, we live in the world of death, suffering, pain, disease, and injustice. But as the gospel goes out, And people's hearts are transformed as the yeast helps the whole dough to rise. Eventually, if God's people are doing their jobs, systems get changed and culture gets changed. Admittedly, it's a slow process. Yeast doesn't raise the loaf in three minutes. It's a slow process. Sometimes changing these sinful human systems can take a generation or two because there's also the issue of apathy. There's the issue of blind spots. There's a lot of variables here, but Christians ought to show evidence that they are children of God by loving their neighbor and working in a steady fashion to build systems that are genuinely helpful and and help to build human flourishing. But we also know that ultimately justice will not come about until Jesus comes back. 
And we all stand before the great white throne and he will judge us all. This should bring us a great comfort though, because even when things go sideways in this creation in human law courts and things are improperly done, we know with confidence that God will put things right in the next creation. We have a hope of a better existence in the new creation. In closing, I want to say this. I actually think we need more conversations about justice, not less. But I want to go far, far beyond posting memes and hashtags on social media. So I don't really engage in that sort of behavior because honestly, I find it a little superficial. In order for us to go to a deeper place in these discussions, I think we're going to have to make a commitment to scripture and to peaceful and respectful conversation. And I think we need to have everybody in the room with the same starting point. We're all sinners. We're all prejudiced. We all have bias. We're all prone to making judgments in our hearts about other people. We all want to be engaging in actively repenting of our sins and trusting more fully in the righteousness of Christ to save us. Everyone is on equal footing at the foot of the cross. God shows no partiality. He doesn't love the rich more than the poor, and he doesn't love the poor more than the rich, and we're all sinners. We're all sinners in need of a Savior. But the truth is that today, all of us can make a stand for Sadak justice. All of us can look around in our sphere of influence in the 8 to 15 people that God has strategically and supernaturally placed in our lives to think about what skills do I have that I could help this person who is struggling. And whether that person is struggling with, with old age, with difficulty with their health, with difficulty with finding a job, difficulty with legal problems. All of us can look around and say, here's something I can do. Here's something I can speak into, but make it a relationship first because see races don't reconcile hearts, reconcile people, reconcile. We can have all these macro conversations, but really where change is going to happen is where the gospel comes in, changes people's lives and hearts And we get reconciled to each other and we get in relationships with each other. When we show our children that we deal with rich and poor in an equal way, that we don't give preference to the rich. We don't want to have the rich be impressed with us. And we look at people in the eye, no matter who they are. We see their God-given image. We treat people with with equity and fairness. Then we are acting like the people of God, and we are giving evidence that we are children of God. We belong to a heavenly kingdom first. Let's focus on our true identity in Christ and live out his vision for the world around us. Wow, I thank you for watching. I hope you've enjoyed the last hour. I hope you'll share this teaching with others in your life. And please do send me some feedback if you found it helpful. Thank you so much for watching. Good night and God bless. Be sure to follow Theology Mom on Facebook and like, comment, and subscribe on YouTube. Don't forget to catch Krista next week for more theology fun on Theology Mom and all the things.
Thanks for listening. 